from the text that I read earlier in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And we're probably going to spend most of our time just on verses 16 and 17. And then maybe we might skip to the end if we have some time. But we're not going to deal with all of that text in detail. But just by way of background, the book of Galatians is divided into three parts. There is chapter 1 and 2. And you have the Judaizers who have been following Paul around all over the Galatian region. And they've been undermining his authority. They've been telling all the people in, the, in that region that this guy Paul is not really who he says he is. And they've been undermining his authority. And so in verses, I mean in chapters 1 and 2, we have Paul defending his authority. Letting them know that he really has the credentials to say what he is saying. Then in chapters 3 and 4, the Judaizers have undermined the gospel of grace. They've been trying to bring in the law and, and mix it together with grace. And so chapters 3 and 4 are Paul defending the gospel that he teaches. Well, then we come to verse chapters 5 and 6. And the Judaizers have been telling the Galatian believers that their freedom in Christ is not really as free as Paul seems to indicate. That there are other things that they have to do. And so chapters 5 and 6 is Paul's defense of the freedom that we have in Christ. So if you look at chapter 5 and verse 1 right quick, just, just kind of as a little bit more background here, he sets forth a thesis, or he gives an idea. And he says that, and he says that we have freedom in Christ. And so he lays out the, this thesis, and then he begins to explain his thesis for the next few verses up through verse 15. And if I were to give you an outline of that, it would look something like this. So verse 1 is, you have freedom. You're free in Christ. In verses 2 through 12, he says, so don't revert back to the old way of things. That's legalism. And then verses 13 through 15, he says, but also, don't use this freedom to throw off moral restraints. Instead, exercise this newfound freedom and service to one another. That is the true meaning of love. And so, verses 1 through 15 is a thesis, and then an explanation of that thesis. Well, likewise, when we come to verse 16, he does the same thing again here. He sets forth a general principle that's going to govern everything that he says all the way through chapter 6 and verse 10. We're not going to get that far, but he lays out this principle. And the principle is walking by the Spirit. So just as Jesus is the primary person behind our justification, and you know, you know justification, and, and we've been taught this here before, that justification is a moment in time. It's that moment that you repent and you receive Christ, and you are therefore justified. From that moment on, there's nothing else that, that will ever change that. And just as Jesus is the primary person behind that act, the Holy Spirit is the primary person behind our sanctification. And the sanctification is an ongoing process that lasts the entirety of our Christian life where we become more like Christ. Or that's the goal, anyway. And so, a person can no more sanctify himself than he could have saved himself. You can't live the Christian life by your own resources any more than you could have saved yourself by your own resources. It is an act of God. 
So the simplest definition of the Christian life is a life lived under the direction and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the theme for this section of Galatians that we're going to look at today. That is the theme. I lost the mic. Alright. So here we have verse 16. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So Paul starts this section as if to say, here's the solution. He spent all this time up to verse 16 laying out a thesis about how we have this freedom in Christ and not to pervert it, not to fall back into legalism or fall into libertarianism, but you have freedom. And so here's the solution. Here's the solution right here. See, the Galatians are split between legalism. Listen, I've been using these words. Let me define them for you. Legalism is the idea where you have to follow a set of rules in order to be justified. You have to follow a set of rules in order to know God. That you have to do something. You have to be circumcised or you have to be baptized or you have to go to church or you have to do this or you have to do that. You have to dress a certain way or say certain things in order to be justified. And Paul is saying that's not the case. That's legalism. That's on this end of the spectrum. And the Galatians are split right there. They're, some of them are they're in this, some of them are falling into legalism, but some of them are falling into libertarianism. And libertarianism is the other end of the spectrum where there are no moral restraints. And so after exposing these two dangerous positions, he gives us the remedy there. In verse 16, it says, walk by the Spirit. Paul has shown repeatedly that this idea of law and grace are, are incompatible, much like oil and water. And y'all know this illustration. If you take a container and you put oil and water in there, it doesn't matter how much you shake it up, they don't mix. They're incompatible. Such is law and grace. They can't exist, they can't mix together in the same, in the same unit, in the same container. And the, the law was never meant to save anyone. The law was given to point people to Christ, much like a road sign out on the, on the road that says Beaumont, 20 miles or however far. It's a sign pointing to something else, and that's what the law was for. It was to drive people to the Messiah. So the believer has no use for the law as it refers to salvation. As a means of salvation. We have been, we're, we're a new believer. We've already been saved and we've been adopted into God's family. And Galatians 3 goes into great detail about our adoption as sons and how the law is a tutor for us to teach us and to show us. But it's not to save us. So we don't need that system to guide us in this new life. We, we have Christ's own Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come and He indwells us and He has set up permanent residence within us. And that is all we need to live a life of godliness. The Spirit is our permanent indwelling guide. In fact, the more a believer forces himself to live by a set of rules, no matter how lofty they may be, the more He stifles that work of the Holy Spirit. So the more you try to uphold a set of rules, the more you stifle 
the work of the Holy Spirit and what He's trying to do in your life. But then you say, well, wait. But there are rules. There are commands that we have to keep. There are things that we have to do. And, you, and if I were to ask you, you could probably come up with things like studying your Bible, prayer, evangelism, wor- uh, worshiping together with other believers. And then there are certain moral standards that are commanded of believers. And in fact, are essential for the Christian life. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been in Galatians chapter 4 and 5, and that is exactly what that is. There's rules for living. Things that we are supposed to do and things that we are not allowed to do. So the question is, how does those things fit together? How do we reconcile these ideas of of not having to keep rules, but there's rules to keep? See, the frequency and the intensity of these actions, how often you pray and how often you study and how often you, you gather here is not a measuring stick of your spirituality. You can be here every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and, there, and any other time that we have anything going on, whether here or other places, and that does not make you spiritual. Spirituality must flow from a love for God and a desire to honor Him. In fact, to use these things as a measuring stick is the definition of legalism. These are good things to study your word, to study the word, and to pray, and uh, to witness to others. And... But that's not what it's about. It's not. You can't say, "Well, yeah, I go to church every Sunday. Big deal. Big deal." That's not the measuring. That's not the measuring stick. To live by a set of rules. It's to live by the flesh and it's self-righteousness and it's hypocrisy and it's to suppress the Spirit. But it's the Spirit alone. It's Him alone who, who's able to inwardly produce the works of righteousness in us. Holiness comes from the Holy Spirit. Duh. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Holiness comes from the Holy Spirit. Not from you and how often you read or how often you pray or how often you invite people to church or how often you come to church or how often you share the gospel. That doesn't produce holiness. Holiness is produced by the Holy Spirit living in you. It, is, it doesn't come from our performance. But it comes from God's performance through the Holy Spirit living in us. So all a believer needs to live a holy life according to the will of God is the Holy Spirit. And He's given to us at the moment we believe in full measure. There's not a second time where we will receive more of the Holy Spirit if we do these certain things. There's not a, there, there isn't more of the Holy Spirit coming. The Holy Spirit doesn't show up on Sunday morning. The Holy Spirit lives in us all the time. So verse 16 says, I walk by the Spirit. The word here for walk is, it's in the present tense. It's not a past tense word or a future tense. It's present tense, which indicates that what Paul is saying here is that this is something that should happen all the time. Not just right now, 
And then at some time down the road, just right then, it's present tense, which means it's a regular action. It's a habitual way of life. It also is used in such a way to show us that, it's not, that He's not giving us an option here. This is a command. This is a requirement. You are commanded to walk by the Spirit all the time, regularly, not just when we feel like it. Or not just when it's convenient. It's a constant, daily, moment by moment walk. So this word, walk, has some implications, doesn't it? There's some implications for walking in the Spirit. It implies that there's progress. There implies some progress there that we're going to go going from one place to another. There, where you are right now to where you ought to be. As you and I submit to the Spirit, God, through the Spirit, moves us from where we are to where we should be, to where we ought to be, where God wants us to be. And so there's somewhat of a paradox here. Because it is the Spirit who is the source of all holy living. It is the Spirit working in us that, that causes us to be holy. But the command is not to the Spirit, is it? The command is to the believer. The command is to the believer. And so, and so even though it's the Spirit who is the source of all holiness and all holy living, it is the believer who is commanded to walk. So there's this paradox between the divine sovereignty of God and the human ability. And we see this in many other places. In fact, let's look at a couple of them. Turn over, if you will, to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 35 through 40. John chapter 6. Verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of My Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I Myself will raise Him up on the last day. So here, just in these few verses, we have a, another example of a divine paradox, of an apparent paradox, because on the one hand, you have God who gives the believers to Christ. All the believers from all eternity... God gives them to Christ to keep. But then you also have in, that, in, that, in those verses, all of anyone who comes to Christ, He will not, He will raise them up. So you have this paradox. God gives the believers to Christ, but also the Christ, believers come to Christ. We're not going to reconcile that here this morning. That's been debated by far greater men than I. But there is... 
a seemingly paradox in that verse. Another one that you might that I want to point out is uh, in Romans chapter eight. Turn over, if you will, to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of the great verses of the Bible. Actually, they're all great verses of the, uh, chapters of the Bible, but this is a, an exceptional chapter in the Bible. And actually, they're all exceptional chapters in the Bible. This is an extraordinary chapter in the Bible. Actually, they're all extraordinary, aren't they? You know, you know, what, you know what I mean? Verse um, 31. Verse 31 through 39, it says this. It says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will, he, how will He not give us, freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, Rather, He who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our eternal security is eternally secure. And there is nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ. But turn over to Colossians, please. Or scroll to Colossians, however you do it. Chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 says this, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So there again, we have a paradox. Our eternal security cannot, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing, not famine, not death, not peril, sword, any of those things can separate us from the love of God. But in Colossians, the same author who wrote Romans says, if you continue in the faith. So those things, just to just to help you see this paradox that we're looking at in, uh, in Galatians, that we are to walk by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us, but it's the believers who are commanded to do the walking, to do the work. Let me, just a little side note on this idea here of, um, of the Spirit working. It's, it's common in our churches and in Christianity today to overemphasize the central work of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, there are some Christians have lost that tension. They've lost that tension between the human and the divine. 
And we've just seen three areas in our Christian life where there is that tension. So there is a tension there. And, but when people overemphasize the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, they lose that tension between human and divine. And they have taught the idea that is suggested in many of the popular phrases today. For example, the surrendered life. Have you heard that phrase? The surrendered life. Here's one that's more popular. Let go and let God. Now, I know I'm going to step on some toes with this, but what's new, right? Rightly used, these expressions can be helpful. They are helpful if they are understood to mean letting go of one's own resources, letting go of one's own self-will, and surrendering to God's truth and power, then that idea can be scriptural. And that idea is scriptural. The problem comes in, though, that way too often, they're used to teach the idea that the Christian life is little more than just passive submission and yieldedness to, to God. They ignore, and in fact, are contrary to many of the commands that require us to put forth great effort and require us to put forth commitment. And those commands are all throughout the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, for example. Or Hebrews 12, 1-3, for example. So, so this is the idea. And that's, a, that is, that's called, um, in philosophical circles, that's called quietism. Where you, where you empty your mind and you just, and you just relax and, and, and you allow God's Spirit to flow through you. Folks, that's not scriptural. It's not biblical. And that idea comes, it's, comes, from, uh, well, it comes from several places, but um, it's the passive surrender to God. And it's, but it's taught at the exclusion of human volition and action. We have a part to play in all this. The old Quakers are a prime example of, of those who practice quietism. Um, Quakers, well, that's what they do. You know, one of my favorite authors is a guy who is a Quaker, uh, named Philip Gully. He's a great short story writer, and and I would actually commend his his books to you. But you must be careful when you read it because some of this quietism kind of leaks out into his stories. He's not. He doesn't consider himself a theologian, but he's a good writer and he writes great stories. But some of this passiveness and yieldedness to God leaks into his stories, and so you have to be careful if you read him. Another one is the Keswick movement. I don't know if y'all know much about that. Keswick is a, it's not really a, a religion, so to speak, but it's just it's a movement where a bunch of evangelical Christians meet once a year, and it began back in 1857. They meet every year for this teaching on the Spirit-filled life and how to achieve the Spirit-filled life. And from that has come a, a great emphasis in the church today on this quietism and this passive yieldedness. And it's dangerous. A couple of books that, uh, that promote this idea are Hannah Whittall Smith, The Christian Secret to a Happy Life. That is a book about quietism. Christian passiveness. Thomas Akempis and the imitation of Christ. 
And then Brother Lawrence, and the practice of the presence of God. Dangerous. Now, has everyone who read those books fallen into false teaching? No, probably not. And, and they probably have, can go on to live a, a normal and productive and effective Christian life. But to take that information that's found in those books solely, apart from Scripture, is to do damage to your Christian life because they teach a quietism, a passive, remove yourself out of the equation kind of a deal. The Bible never teaches that. The power of the Christian life is entirely from the Holy Spirit just as the power of salvation is entirely from Jesus Christ. But both in, justify, in the in justifying work of Christ and in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, man's will is active and a commitment is required. So please don't hear me say that, that walking in the Spirit requires nothing of you. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, but you're required to do the walking. Well, the second phrase of that verse is... In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's a result of the first phrase. And it's also a promise. And these phrases are mutually exclusive. You cannot do one and not do the other. I mean, you can't do one and the other at the same time. You either do one or the other. Not both. Paul is saying that if you are walking in the Spirit, then you will not be carrying out the desires of the flesh. And if you are living according to the flesh, then you're not walking in the Spirit. At all times, at all times in our Christian life, we are one or the other. We are either walking by the Spirit, or we are functioning in the flesh and giving heed to our fleshly desires, but never at the same time. So what does this life look like? What does it look like to, for a believer who's walking in the Spirit? A life that's walked in the Spirit is this. It's, it's a Christ-like life. It is a life that is saturated. A believer's thoughts are saturated with love and the glory of our Lord. The Spirit-filled life is, it is the desire to be like Him in every way. Not in most ways. Not in just the important ways. In all ways. Our desire should be to be like Christ. To walk in the Spirit is to live a life that is continually conscious of His presence and His will. In other words, just to know the Word of God. When we know the Word of God, we're going to be conscious of, of what God's will is for our life. And, and a Spirit-filled life, a life that's walking in the Spirit, is an indication of that. That is one of the indications of it. Is that you are conscious, 
conscious of God's presence and of God's will. It is a life that's patterned after the teaching and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a life whose constant overriding desire is to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of our own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It is a desire to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. That is what it... uh, To walk in the Spirit... That is what those things look like. A life that's being walked in the Spirit should look a lot like Jesus Christ. Well, verse 17. Verse 17 says, and the, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. If there is ever a question in your mind of whether the Christian life is a matter of passive surrender, this verse should put that to rest. The Spirit-led life is a life of conflict. The Spirit-led life is a life that is in constant battle with the old ways of the flesh that continue to tempt and to seduce the new man. And we live this struggle every day. We have this battle every day. The term flesh is one that Paul used to describe the remains of the old man. After a person is saved, we have a new self. We're a new being. We're a new creation. But our new self lives in this body of humanness. And so we have this struggle. This is this term old man refers to this unredeemed part of us. This unredeemed humanness is part of the in fact it's part of the creation, the material things of the world. In Romans 8:23 it talks about how creation longs for and it groans for its redemption that will soon be in Christ Jesus at our glorification. This body is part of that creation and our body longs for its redemption. So until then, we have a redeemed self living in an unredeemed humanness and that creates great conflict. The word for flesh is a Greek word called sarx. S-A-R-X if, you're, if you want to write it down. But it's, it means flesh. And it's, and it's used in different ways. It, occasionally it refers to the physical body. This, the skin and the muscle tissue and things that, that, we can, that, that we're familiar with. The physical part of it. In fact, Jesus used it in this way. In Luke 24-39 when He tells the disciples, He said, look at Me. Touch Me. I'm no spirit. Spirits don't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. This is that word. So Jesus used it to refer to our fleshly body that we see. But it's also used to as a, as a comprehensive 
description of, of the unsaved, of, a, of unbelievers who are totally under the control of sinful passions. And as such, it's generally used in a figurative sense, um, a theological sense, and it refers to man's fallenness or his unredeemed self. As believers, we have a redeemed self, but occasionally, most often, this word in the Greek is used to refer to unredeemed self, lost humanity. But in this present context, here in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 5, flesh also relates to the moral and spiritual weakness and helplessness of our human nature that still clings to our redeemed souls. It's that part of us. It's not all of us. It's that part of us that is still un, yet unredeemed. And this is the, and this is the struggle. This is, the, this is what Paul talks about in Romans 7 when he says, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. It's that. That struggle. So the flesh of Christians is this. It's their propensity to sin. It's their fallen humanness that still remains. It's that part of a believer that functions apart from the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit indwells the believers. But there's still that little part of us. There's still that part of the believer which is unredeemed. Until we are glorified in heaven forever, that part of the believer which we are calling the flesh sets itself against the Spirit and the Spirit works against the flesh. And that's what Paul's talking about here in verse 17. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Now there are times when the wishing is present and the doing is not. Am I right? Like every morning when you're laying in bed and you go, oh, I, I really need to get up and I really need to spend some time with the Lord this morning. I really need to get in the Word. But your feet just aren't getting to the floor. The wishing is there and the doing is not there. And it is true that the Spirit often halts what our flesh desires. We know that to be true. But the flesh often overrides the will that comes from the Spirit. We, along with Paul, can cry out in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Who indeed? So there's a struggle. There is a constant struggle. We jump down to verse 25 there. Paul comes to... Verse 25. And it's kind of a conclusion to this command to walk by the Spirit. And he gives us a short little summary statement. And it serves to conclude this teaching on, on the contrast and the conflict that, that exists between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he says this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So it seems... And it seems, uh, in Greek, if can be translated a number of different ways, and some of your translations may have it, but a, I think a better way to say this would be, since we live by the Spirit. And that is, since the Holy Spirit who lives in us gives us life, 
So it's an accomplished fact. There is a, there, there, there's no question about whether the Holy Spirit lives in us. It is indeed a fact. Since the Holy Spirit lives in us, let us also walk by the Spirit. Some of your translations may, set us, may say, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And this is a military term. And it means to draw up in a line. To, 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 to get into formation. To stand in a row. In philosophical circles, it used to mean to follow someone's philosophical principles. So in other words, when you keep in step with someone, you follow their ideas and you follow their principles. So, so what it does here in this context, it suggests a discipleship. It, it suggests a conformity to Christ under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So let me give you the Wilson paraphrase of, that, of this verse. It says, Since we know that the Spirit has given us life, let us follow His principles in conforming to Christ. That's the idea in verse 25. And then, and then we come to verse 26, the last verse there. And, that, and this verse forms like a transition. We're going to transition from chapter 5 over to chapter 6. And Paul has just presented the works of the, of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, and called all the believers to live according to the Spirit. Verse 26 says, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. It can be understood like this, Let us walk by the Spirit and let us not become conceited. And it's almost like bookends. Earlier he said, walk by the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And here he says, let us walk by the Spirit and not become conceited. So, it's like bookends to this section. We'll walk by the Spirit and we'll walk by the Spirit. On both ends. The term for conceited here actually is literally means vain glory. It means to an, an eager for an empty glory. It is to attract attention to yourself so that that is what you relish in. It's, a, it's an emptiness. It's glory. John Gill, an old uh, commentator, once said that, it's, that it means an ambition, ambitious of being thought wiser or richer or more valuable than others. In a word, it is pride. It is pride. And then there's other terms there, provoking and envying, seem to flow out of that first one. Pride, when someone is prideful, they tend to provoke others because that helps them build themselves up to look much better when they provoke others. And also, envying. Envying is a prideful, is pride. And so, these things kind of flow out of others. It would really, it would really be easy to go into like an extended explanation and list of examples of pride at this point, but I think, but I think if we did that, we, would, we really would miss the point here. Paul is simply referring to sin in general. Pride is the root of all other sins. The fact that he mentions it specifically should cause us to dig a little deeper and search deeper than just external actions. 
This really has to do with our motives. Why we do the things that we do. Why we do. The reality is that sin exists in every Christian's life. There is a movement out there that says that once you become a believer, you don't sin anymore. Well, they didn't get that from the Bible. The Apostle John warns us in 1 John 1. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In fact, he goes on in verse 10, he says, if we say that we've not sinned, we make God a liar, and His Word is not in us. And sin affects many things. It not only affects the believer himself, but also God and others. Did you know that your sin affects God? Your sin affects other people around you? Your sin affects believers and non-believers. In regard to yourself, sin results, results in the loss of confidence. It results in the loss of, of that inner joy and peace that we have in Christ. As well as other characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. All those fruit of the Spirit that we read earlier in chapter in verse 22 of chapter 5, all of those things are in peril when you sin. 2 Peter 1.10 gives us the opposite side of that truth. It says, as long as you practice these things, referring to the list of spiritual virtues that he had just listed, you will never stumble. In other words... Peter lists this list of virtues and he says, if you practice these things, you will never stumble. Sin in the life of the believer also weakens your anticipation of Christ's second coming. Christ is coming again and it's imminent. It could be any moment. But when sin... And dwell, lives in you, and you're living a life of sinfulness, and you're living out this habitual pattern of sin, and sin is affecting your life, you don't really have the confidence that it's going to be right now. Or maybe you have the hope that it won't be right now. To give you an opportunity to get through this sinful era in your life and repent. Friends, the time for repentance is now. Sin also defeats and even sometimes destroys our usefulness in ministry. It inhibits our, our ministry. A sinful life can no more produce good works any more than a bad tree can produce good fruit. And on the other hand, if a man cleanses himself from these things, referring to a list of sins that Paul had just given in, uh, in 2 Timothy, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, and useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Sin destroys your life. Sin also affects God. Sin in a believer affects God. Paul compares an immoral believer to one who would, who would unite a harlot to the Lord. Can you even fathom that? When you sin, it's the same as uniting a harlot, a hooker, to the Lord. How dare us? 
1 Corinthians 6, 16 talks about that. It says, Do you not know that one who joins himself to a harlot is one is one body with her? For it is written, the two will become flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So if you call yourself a believer, your sin affects God. Later in that same epistle, Paul said, The cup of blessing that we bless, that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Talking about the Lord's Supper. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. 1 Corinthians 10. Ephesians 4.30 says, reminds believers to not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by participating in sin. Your sin affects your God. And that's not all. Your sin affects other believers as well. As a believer, you are united in Christ's body. And all other believers are also united in Christ's body. And when you sin, you are infecting your fellow believers because they are all one in Christ's body. We are all one. We are all impacted by each other's sin. That is why sin in the church must be confronted and dealt with among believers. We cannot give it time to to take a foothold and to infect everyone else in our in our congregation it must be dealt with but your sin also affects unbelievers in that it diminishes the attractiveness of Christ when we sin in front of unbelievers we diminish the attractiveness of Christ. You know, the reason that the church grew in the, early, in the early years of the church is because these believers were setting themselves apart. They weren't doing the things of the world and they were attracting unbelievers like crazy and there were unbelievers joining them and submitting their lives to Christ because the believers were different. And when we live in in a not-so-different way, we don't make Christ as attractive as He really is. Sin as a way of making sin look not so sinful, doesn't it? We tend to justify. It causes us to want to wink at it or ignore it. And you've heard Pastor Kevin talking about his commitment to not watching some of the TV shows because of some of the language they have in them. Sin causes us to wink at or ignore it. We trifle with it. We ignore it under this guise of love and we, and we all together fail to deal with it. We preach against sin. We talk about how we shouldn't sin. We tell, we tell other people how they shouldn't sin. But... We don't deal with it in the lives of individuals in our fellowship. We just talk about it. 
Sin has a way of perverting our pursuit of holiness. It turns our honest efforts at true righteousness into an arrogant display of self-righteousness. It makes it easy to deal with sin in the wrong way and with the wrong spirit. I've been guilty. If you're honest, you've been guilty. There's always temptations to deal with the sinning brothers or sisters out of a self-righteous and judgmental attitude rather than from a genuinely humble and righteous concern for the purity of the Lord's body. The church is the bride of Christ. How many of you would ever consider going to a wedding and standing back and throwing your grape juice or whatever onto the bride? Would you ever consider doing something like that? We are the bride of Christ and when you sin, you tarnish that bride. We must be concerned for how we portray ourselves in the world, in our homes, on social media. What do your posts on Facebook say about the church? What do your posts on Facebook say about you? No matter what you intended for it to say, it is received a certain way and it tells people something about you, about your home, and about your church, and about your God. Please be careful. Although the Christian life is warfare, as we saw in verse 17, it is warfare in which victory is always possible. Every believer has the indwelling power of God's Spirit to do battle with his own weak and sinful flesh. And let me just remind you that the power that created the world The power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is now the power that lives inside of us to battle and win the fight against sin. In Romans 8.2, Paul wrote, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, there's a third party. A third party is key to this conflict between the new creation and the flesh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit energizes the new man to, for victory over the flesh. We have this redeemed self that lives inside an unredeemed humanness. And those battle each other. And the Holy Spirit now is here and He energizes this redeemed self to overpower, to fight, and to conquer, and to win the battle. So how do we know if we're being led by the Spirit? The most effective way for Christians to oppose the desires of the flesh is to starve them to death. Romans 13.13 says, Make no provision for the flesh. In other words, the surest way to fall into sin is to allow yourself to get into a situation where you're tempted. The safest way to avoid a sin is to avoid situations where you're likely to pose temptations. 
Didn't come out right. Avoid the situation. If your old self was a self who drank and got drunk, it's not a good idea for you to hang out at the bar or the club or at a party where there's a lot of alcohol being served. Avoid situations. If you struggle with lust and looking at inappropriate material, it might be time to get rid of the smartphone and go back to that old flip phone that doesn't do anything except make a call. Do not put yourself into a situation where you will be tempted by the sin that is your struggle. Avoid such things. If you work in a place where you are struggling to live out a Christian identity where the people around you make it impossible for you to live a holy life. And it is tempting you because, because of the language and because of the, the talk and, the, and the, uh, the crudeness and the coarse joking and all that kind of stuff. And you can't separate yourself from that. It might be time to find a new job. If that's what's required, make no provision for the flesh. Avoid those situations. Now I'm not saying that you need to go quit your job tomorrow. But I am saying that if this is a problem at your work, you need to start looking for, more, for a different work. How does the life look that's being led by the Spirit? A believer who is not actively involved in resisting evil and obviously seeking to do good is not being led by the Spirit. If you're not actively involved in resisting evil and you're not seeking ways to do good, actively involved, you're not being led by the Spirit. We are not observers of this thing called Christianity. 2 Timothy 2 says that we are soldiers of Christ Jesus who is engaged in the active service of the Lord. We're soldiers. We're warriors. We're not passive. We're not observers. And finally, a believer can accomplish nothing for the Lord on his own power. But on the other hand, the Spirit can accomplish little through a believer apart from the believer's submission and commitment. The Holy Spirit is the source of our power. But we still must do the walking. We still must walk. If you're here this morning and you don't even know Jesus Christ. There's never been a time in your life that you have repented of your sins and you have submitted yourself to the authority of God. Well, it's not too late to do that. Jesus said today is the day of salvation. And friends, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, Christianity is one of the greatest adventures that you could ever undertake. It is far superior to anything in your past that you've ever experienced.
Father, we thank You this morning for this time to be able to come and share Your Word and to, and to learn from You. And God, I ask this morning that, that You would help us to submit to Your Holy Spirit. Father, that living within us, we have the power to overcome sin in our lives. And I pray, God, that You would help us to recognize that, that You would help us to understand it, and that You would help us to seize that, and that You would help us, Father, to walk in the Spirit day by day, moment by moment, always conscious of Your presence and Your will, Father, I thank You for these people here this morning. I pray that, that the things they've learned this morning wouldn't just wouldn't stay in their chairs as they leave, but they would take them with them into their, into their homes and their workplace and their lives and to, and to put them into practice. Father, forgive us for being so apathetic. Forgive us for, for being so prideful. We thank You again for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us, who shed His blood and gave His life on the cross that, that we, as feeble and sinful and wretched as we are, could have life in Him. That's in His name that I pray. Amen. Well.